about chapter 1, and last week we, we really got a, uh, an introduction to chapter 1, and I think you're probably seeing now how massive this book is as far as not only what Paul's trying to get across, but all the material that he's trying to cover. And last week we began to break down chapter 1, which really talks about the mindset of the Gentiles. And if you remember, I told you that the first two chapters in this book really deal with the two people groups that we are going to reach as the body of Christ. The first people group is going to be the Gentiles themselves, and then the other people group is going to be the nation of Israel. They don't think the same. They don't, they don't do things the same. And I told you how that we really have to be able to uh, understand how they think that we can reach them. So today we're going to begin to br uh, break this chapter down, chapter 1, and uh, this chapter breaks into two sections. And the first section of this runs verse 1 through verse 12, and this is where Paul gives his standard greeting and he opens up, you know, the letter saying hello to everybody and uh, talks about a lot of different things as far as greeting the people. Most of his books uh, open up this way. The second section will be found in verse 13 through 32, and here's where he begins to focus in on the real meat of chapter 1, and that is uh, the nature of the Gentiles, and he details them out as, how do they, as to how they think and how that God deals with them and, and how we are to uh, try to reach them, and he really gives you the mindset behind the Gentiles. Now, when we come through the book of Romans, and if you haven't seen this yet, you, you, and I'm sure you probably have if you're paying attention, we've got a lot of material here. And uh, I'm going to try to accomplish three things as we come through this book. One, I'm going to try to follow the natural flow of the book of Romans, and I'm going to always keep before you. We talked about, you know, this year being the year of the Bible in our church. We've taken almost five years now and laid a great foundation in, in our lives. And now with all the other things, last night we finished up the last class on the book of Judges, and we got, we got that all detailed out. And uh, every eight weeks or six weeks we take another book and we break it down where you can get it into your Bible and you can understand it. And you're seeing now, if last night, that, you know, the first five, six, seven books of the Bible were fairly easy. When we got into Judges this time, wow, what a, what a book that is. And you're going to begin to see Romans as much like that. There's so much material here. And I don't want to get caught up in, in, in any of it that we lose sight of what we're trying to accomplish. First and foremost, we want to understand the book in its context, in its entirety. So we don't want to disrupt the natural flow of the book. We always want to keep before us what God is trying to accomplish overall in the book of Romans as he establishes the Gentile church. Then we're going to find the second thing, that each chapter is going to have a theme of its own. We already laid some of these out. We're going to have to, in keeping with uh, the first thing, we're going to have to also detail out these chapters that within the book itself, you understand how each chapter fits in as a composite. And then the third thing we want to do, and this is aside from number one and number two, and this is where it gets really complicated. There are so many great concepts in the book of Romans, in the individual chapters. Literally in some of these chapters, we could just do word studies. We could do take one concept, one verse, and, and spend two or three weeks on it. Obviously, we've we got to balance all of this. I don't want to get so into the nuts and bolts of it that we lose the overall picture. So we're going to be moving, transcending back and forth in all of these and, and hopefully emerging through it where you have a good, thorough understanding of not only how the book is overall, 
but how it breaks down by the chapters, but then how each chapter not only has its own theme, but the many, many, many concepts. And I would, I would encourage you not to, I know some of you like to put your notes in your wide margin Bible to get all, I, I really encourage you to put these notes in a notebook first and then kind of get them to the place where you decide what you want to put in because there's going to be a, a lot of materials. We try to balance all of this out in our studies as we come through the book. All right, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you, Father, for all that you've given us. We thank you for our church, for the Word of God, for the men and women that you brought into this church that, that want to learn your Bible, that want to serve you, and that want to go back out and take what they learn to change the lives of others. We thank you for the individual lives that are being changed on a regular basis, for the families that uh, are changed, and for the marriages that are put back together, and for all of the things that you've given us. Pray for our little kids down there the hall, Lord, as they're, we're ministering to the parents here, that they're being ministered to, and the people are taking the Word of God, and loving them, and showing them the great principles that are the foundation in their life for mom and dad to work on uh, in their families. Help us, Lord, in everything we do in this church to always put the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ first, and we'll give you the honor and the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, as far as I am concerned, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and we're not going to get any farther in verse 1 today, but as far as I am concerned, Romans chapter 1, verse 1 is one of the greatest passages in the Bible. I'm always looking, when I study my Bible, I'm always looking for places in the Bible that give me a real, concise, understandable concept that I can grasp in my life. You know, there's things in the Bible that you got to take a, a, you know, two or three hour study and you got to run them all through the Bible and run your references and all of that. And those are great. And I love those. But I like the places where you come to the Bible and it just gets real quick to the point you have a couple of things there and bang, everybody can grasp it. And that's certainly Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Paul says this. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, verse 1 puts us right into an incredible study of what it takes to be an effective minister for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I talk about being an effective minister, let me quantify, qualify that. I mean that uh, I'm not talking about that some of you out there that want to be a minister someday in the sense of being a pastor. Every child of God that's saved in this room today ought to be a minister. You ought to be ministering the Word of God to somebody, whether it be your family or people you're working with or whatever the case may be. We have a program here of discipleship where uh, we put a couple of people with a new Christian that brings them through and fundamentally gives them the key things to understand the Bible. That's ministering to them. Ministry in the Bible is not singing in the choir. It's not driving a church bus. It's, not, it's, it's taking the Word of God and giving the Word of God to somebody else. That's what ministry is. And in time, every man and woman in this church ought to be ministering to somebody with the Word of God. That is the key to a successful ministry. But you're going to find that verse 1 puts us right in, the, right in the middle of understanding what really an effective minister is. Now, some of you someday, some of you guys will be a pastor. And you're going to find that these same three things fit into that concept. Some of you are, are, uh, are just young Christians. And uh, you're not really ministering to anybody yet, but you're learning it yourself. You're going to find that when you in time begin to reach out to people, and whether you're reaching out to lost people to try to bring them to Christ or you're reaching out to saved people to try to help establish them in the Word of God, 
you're going to find that Romans chapter 1 is a verse that I hope that you never forget. Because Paul opens up this book in verse 1 with an incredible statement about himself. And doing so shows us what we need to be to be an effective minister for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you remember, oh it's been probably two or three months ago on a Thursday night, somebody asked me a question, I had said this uh, almost a year ago in something else that we talked. I talked about it in the Old Testament, that there were seven men in the Old Testament by name, that if you really wanted to understand how to have a relationship with God, you just study these men. You remember that? And we talked about, and I even walked you through, and I gave you what each man represented. Now, there's all kinds of studies in the Bible, and you can take them all, but there are seven distinct men in the Old Testament who, in their walk and in the struggles that they go through, you will find everything you need to know if you compositely put it together. You will find everything you need to know in their lives about getting through life and the struggles of life and the problems of life and maintaining your relationship with God intact. And it's an incredible study. Well, in the New Testament, there's also seven men. And these seven men not, do not show you necessarily what your, how to have a relationship with God, but these seven men lay out for you uh, and represent for you the seven aspects of, of your ministry with God. Where the Old Testament, these seven men show you how to have a relationship with God and to have a walk with God, these seven men represent what I call the aspects of ministry uh, that you need to have to really understand to be used effectively of God. Let's go through them very quickly. All right? Now, as a Christian, you ought to understand sacrifice. And, of course, sacrifice is one of the key concepts of ministry because you need to understand all the aspects of that. So if you were going to go into the New Testament and find one man who was the example in a definitive sense of sacrifice, it would simply be, and it's an easy one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the model for my sacrifice. And when you study his life, you can learn many, many things from it. I'm not suggesting that you can't learn all the other aspects of Christianity. Certainly you can but if you want to understand in a definitive sense the aspect of sacrifice, you have to study the, the sacrifice that Christ made on Calvary's cross. I know none better. Some of you want to be a pastor someday, and some of you will make good pastors someday. But if you want to really be a pastor, then you're going to have to understand the man in the Bible that is the definition of what a pastor should be. In fact, he's called the model pastor in the Bible, and that would be Timothy. Now, some of you, you say, well, I'm not going to be a pastor, or I don't think God's called me to be a pastor. Certainly, if you're a lady, He hasn't called you. But you say, what good is that to me? Because you need to know what a pastor ought to be. In other words, you need to understand the concept whether you ever are called to be one or not. So the model pastor in the Bible is Timothy. You're going to find that uh, we have to understand the concept of worship. And all of these concepts are lost today. There's actually God's people that think that music is the key to worship uh, or praise. And, of course, if you know your Bible, you know that's not true. If you want a model of worship in the Bible, if you want to walk, you, you see churches all the time, and they, you, you'll see on their marquees, 9 o'clock worship service. They'll talk about the fact, uh, you know, that uh, call to worship. And that's the way the 20th century Laodicean Christian thinks of worship. Let me tell you something. Worship is not a service in the morning. Worship is not something that we call everybody to do. 
Worship is something you ought to live in 24-7 every day of your life in your relationship with Christ. But that's what we like to do. We like to make a set time that we worship, and then we can live the way we want the rest of the week. Let me tell you something. Your relationship with God in worship is defined by one man in the Bible in the New Testament, and it's the Apostle John. If you want to understand what biblical, New Testament, scriptural worship is as far as God's concerned, study John's life. He's the model for it. Then you have the model evangelist, and you have the concept of winning people to Christ. The model evangelist or the model soul winner in the Bible will be Philip. When you go back there to Acts chapter 8, you will find the three aspects of soul winning laid out very clearly for you. And he is the model evangelist or the model soul winner. Every, every child of God needs to be a servant. And you need to understand what your service means and what it means to be a servant. Well, the model for that in the Bible would be Titus, the book of Titus. Every, uh, excuse me, uh, stewardship, I'm sorry, stewardship, that's Titus. You ought to be a steward of the things that God has given you. And uh, when you want to understand stewardship, then you study the book of Titus. When you want to be a servant, there we go, then it's Philemon. Philemon is the book that lays out uh, for you to be a servant. If you want to be a missionary, and I say this because every child of God sitting in this room this morning ought to be a missionary. We get the idea in the 20th century church that missionaries are somebody that we send out to a foreign country. Every man and woman sitting in this room this morning, if you're saved, ought to count yourself as a missionary. Uh, John, I don't, John, John, John told me a story about the old church he used to go to. They had a missions conference, and all the missionaries had missionary badges on. And John put a missionary badge on himself because John counted himself as a missionary. And they told you to take it off, didn't they, John? See? You know why they told him to take it off? Because in that church, they didn't look at John as a missionary. John, why do you not have your badge on this morning? You see, we're all missionaries. And, of course, wherever you work, that's your mission field. We talked about it last week. Within the Gentile mindset, there are many, many, many different cultures. Your job and my job is to penetrate that culture by the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit of God, with the Word of God, to impact that culture. That's what a missionary does. You don't have to go around the world anymore to reach another culture from another world. They're moving into Kansas City by the busloads. They're everywhere. But we've got the mindset, you see. We've got the mindset that a missionary is somebody that goes to missionary school, gets missionary training, goes and gets his support, and then goes to a foreign field someday. I'm not saying that that's not missions, but what I'm saying is you can't exclude yourself from that just because God hasn't sent you to bango bango doesn't mean you're not a missionary. Wherever your family is is where your first mission call is. And then where you work, the people that are around you, and when you get that mindset in your mind, when you understand that these seven men in the New Testament put them together into a composite, they form the mindset of what you and I ought to be. The seven in the Old Testament show you the relationship you should have with God. The seven in the New Testament show you your aspect of ministry for God. And when you get these seven together, you have a composite. And when they're all in the unity in your life, you become the model Christian. You become exactly balanced out in your life. You understand sacrifice. You understand what a pastor is. You understand what worship is. You understand what soul winning is. You understand what stewardship is. You understand what being a servant is. And you understand what the call of missions is. You understand those things in your life, and it completes you to be everything that God wants you to do. 
Now, in Romans chapter 1, I said all that to say this. In Romans chapter 1, and it was good, by the way, so you better write it down. And in Romans chapter 1, you find that God, Paul makes in a, one sentence, and by making this sentence, includes all of these seven things into what he says. And this is what your life and my life should be. He lays out three descriptions of himself that combine all seven of these that sets the theme not only for the book of Romans for you and for me, but sets the theme for what our goals ought to be as every day we try to perfect ourselves for the work of the ministry as God's child. Now here's what he says, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. He said, the first thing he says there, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing he talks about when he describes himself has to do with being a servant. You know what that has to do with? It has to do with your attitude, my attitude about the things of God, the attitude of a servant. The apostle Paul, without a doubt, was the greatest Christian that ever walked the face of this planet. He was the greatest Christian that ever lived. He was the first man that God gave the body mystery to, but without a doubt, he is probably the greatest Christian that ever lived. And yet you find uh, in this man, the Apostle Paul, all the attitude of a servant. And he set for us a great theme that is that you have to understand. To be a great leader, to be somebody who is a great uh, servant of God or a leader of God upon people, you have to understand and learn to be a good follower first. And to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower, and that requires you taking the attitude of being a servant. And the first thing that he says is, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a hard concept for 20th and 21st century Christians. That's a hard concept for pastors today who, who want to live and reign like kings over their people. It's a tough it's a tough verse for most of God's people who think they're, they're living like kings and queens down here and have lost the concept of being a servant. Last week we talked in our coming through and laying out the foundation of Romans, we talked about racism. And I showed you how that the biggest racist in all the world is God Almighty. God picked one nation, the nation of Israel, and then discriminated against everybody else. And we went through that last week. I showed you how that the idea of racism or the idea of race in its lowest common denominator when you take it through the Bible is you've got three basic races coming out of Noah. And when you've got those three basic races, you're going to find that everybody on this planet comes from Shem, Ham, or Japheth. And you're going to find as you come through the history and come through the Bible that those three boys are in a race a race to who's going to run this world. So racism in its final bottom line is a race between those three boys of who is going to, at the end of the day, who is going to be in charge. You know what the theme of your Bible is? It's a kingdom. And the theme of your Bible has to do with whose authority is going to run that kingdom. Every issue on this planet from Genesis chapter 1 till the Lord comes back is about simply this. When push comes to shove, who's going to run it? That's the issue. When you have family problems in a family, you know what it is? It's when push comes to shove, who has to say? It has to do with who's the right kind of leader? Who's the right kind of follower? They're all issues that have to do with authority. 
And we are like in the church today, like the book of Judges we studied last night. The book of Judges theme that cast the light on the whole book is simply there's no king in Israel and every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. That's Christianity today. And we are living as Christians like kings when in reality, and remember now, we're living in the Laodicean church period. The Laodicean church period, the word Laodicea means rights of the people. We are a bunch of Christians that think we have some rights. We think we have a right to something. We think that we have civil rights, human rights, Christian rights. When in reality, the only right you and I have as a Gentile is to die and burn in hell for eternity. You and I don't have any rights. General Booth, who started the uh, Salvation Army back in the 1800s, uh, he, he mobilized that and brought about one of the greatest, one of the greatest soul-winning movements of the 19th century. And uh, when he was getting old and getting ready to die, and uh, it was Christmas Eve, and he was supposed to address all of the Salvation Army workers nationwide through radio. And he was old and he was in the hospital and he, was, he was, looked like he wasn't going to come home and he was very weak. But they wanted to try to get one last message from their general to out to the Salvation Army troops. And so they set up the radio broadcast in his hospital room. And everybody was tuned in and listening to the great William Booth, who was a Confederate War general in the Civil War, had gotten saved after that and had become one of the greatest soul winners or one of the greatest burdens for the down and trodden. And he started the great Salvation Army, was great back then, who was back then was an absolute soul-winning, Bible-believing organization that had one goal in mind. That was evangelizing the lost. And they put the microphone down close to his mouth and everybody across this nation was tuned in to hear their commander-in-chief of the Salvation Army, give their Christmas message. He was very weak. In fact, he died just a few short hours after this delivery of this message. It wasn't a much of a message. In fact, it was only one word. But it was the one word that, 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 that crystallized what he stood for. It was the one word that brings to home what Paul is saying here when he says, Paul is servant of Jesus Christ. The only word he uttered over the radio waves that night before he went home to be with the Lord was the word that he lived by and he died by. It was the word that, he, he, that God had put in his heart and it was simply the word others. Others. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. Being a Christian is about others. It's about being a servant. It's not about the white man, the black man, the Chinese man, the Russian. It's about others. It's about being a servant. Ye that are strong, the Bible says, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. And in reality, we as God's people, when Paul says that great statement, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, he's dictating for you and me that the attitude that we have to have to do ministry is not one of the 20th, 21st century Laodicean Christian where we think we've got everything we need, that we can, we can fix any problem. No, no, it has to be an attitude of a servant, an attitude of a, of a bond slave that has no rights. I heard a preacher say one time, he said, he said, you know what? He says, God is your employer and you are an employee. And everybody plotted. And I thought to myself, that is so typical of the Laodicean mindset. That is so safe to say something like that not to offend anybody. Well, let me tell you the truth. He's not your employer, and you're not his employee. You are bought with a price, 
You're a, you're a servant. You're a bond slave. You have absolutely no rights. He's your master. You are the servant. And man, that's a long way from where we are at today in, 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 God's, in, in God's mindset as God's people. You know the greatest example of somebody being saved in the Bible is in Acts chapter 8. The greatest example of a man being saved. Now, I know that there's people saved before Acts, and I know there's people saved after Acts chapter 8. But if you want a place, and this happens to be the story of the, the model evangelist and the modeling soul winner, which is Philip, if you want a place in your Bible where the TV cameras just kind of pan down inside and show you the whole concept of how to win somebody to Christ, you find in that story the three aspects of soul winning. Somebody says soul winning is a gift. Somebody else says, well, soul winning is something that you, you learn from a tape, or soul winning is something that you get read out of a book. No, no, no. Soul winning comes about because of your intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that you recognize yourself as a servant. When God called Philip, Philip was in the middle of revival over there in Samaria. He was ministering to probably what? Two, three hundred thousand people. Great revival had just broke out. God pulled him out of that great revival and sent him to the backside of the desert where a black Ethiopian eunuch was sitting on the backside of a chariot trying to figure out Isaiah chapter 53. Now that is evangelism. I know evangelists across this country that won't go preach at any church if you cannot guarantee them a crowd of at least 5,000. Because they think their time is too valuable for, for them to be wasted on a crowd less than 2,000. There is a place in Acts 8, model evangelist, at least 100,000, maybe 200,000 Sumerians. God picked up the lead evangelist and took him to one man. And oh, what a man he is. The first time you find a man saved in the Bible, where it's laid out the same exact way that you got saved, the first time you find it in Acts chapter 8, and believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, the first time you find it done, it's a black man, Ethiopian eunuch, from the land of Ham in Africa. Now, why did God pick a black? In fact, if you really want it, there's four black men in the New Testament. Four. You talk about a joke God plays on people. All this stuff about white power, all the Aryan Brotherhood, the Ku Klux Klan. And then you have the black people on the other side with their race issues. The greatest joke God ever played with anybody is to show you that if you really want to understand the concept of what ministry is, there's four black men in your New Testament. Four black men in your New Testament that show you exactly what it ought to be. You know why? Because when you get saved, Ethiopian eunuch, when he got saved, he's the first one, I'm not going to give you the three. When that Ethiopian eunuch got saved, you know why? Because when you get saved, you need to be a servant of servants. So he picked a servant of servants as the first man that we can identify with. The next three men in the Bible, the other three men in the Bible, all picture some part of your life as a child of God. Why? Because you need to understand a great truth. You need to get it down. When you got saved, you don't have any rights. You're a bond slave. You're a servant of servants. You don't have a right to tell God anything. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, You were bought with a price. Martin Luther King missed that. Of course, it wasn't Martin. His name was Michael. It was Michael Luther King. He took Martin so you'd think he was associated with somebody in the Bible. It's Michael Luther King, if you want to get the truth on it. He missed it. Jesse Jackson never picked it up. 
And I guarantee you the Reverend Fuzzy, whatever his face is, he ain't got it either. No, no, no. It, it, the greatest joke God ever played is everybody's running around in race, trying to get ahead of the other race, trying to claim this and claim that, when the truth of the matter is, when you got saved, the greatest examples of it is are black men in the Bible because you and me and our attitude need to have the attitude of a servant, not a king. You've heard me say many, many times how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are great books to study. In Matthew, Jesus Christ is portrayed as the king of the Jews. So in chapter 1, you find his genealogy running back through the kingly line to David. In Mark, he's represented as a servant. So you know what? In the first part of Mark, or any of Mark, you find no genealogy. Do you know why? Because a servant is a bond slave. He doesn't have a genealogy. In Luke, he's portrayed as the son of man. And Luke gives the account of his physical birth of the Son of Man. So in Luke chapter 3, his genealogy doesn't go back through the kings. It goes back through Mary, back through the human line from which he came from, even though he had no earthly human father. When you come to the John, the Gospel of John, he's the eternal Son of God. So the genealogy in John chapter 1 is simply this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him and not anything made was made. In Him was the light and the light was the life of man. He has a genealogy going back to God because He's the Son of God. Now if you want to study Christ, you study Him in those four ways. But you miss something. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show you the four aspects of your Christian life and my Christian life. Luke, uh, Mark, or Luke. Luke deals with, he's the son of man. So Luke is going to represent your first birth and my first birth when I was born into this world. John is going to represent the son of God. So that's going to represent my second birth, the day I got saved. Mark, it's going to represent the job that I do now after I get saved. I'm a servant. Matthew is going to represent, if I get the first three right, the fourth one is going to be my millennial reign with Christ, and I'm going to reign as a king. You know what the problem is? We get them all mixed up. You don't have the right to make any decision in your life without your master's consent. You're a servant. You're not a king yet. Somebody says, well, I'll go to the church of your choice. Don't ever do that. Don't go to the church of your choice. Go to the church that's God's choice. You don't have a right to decide who you marry. You don't have to decide to write what you eat. You don't have to decide what job you take. You're a bond slave. He decides where you live. He decides what you eat. He decides who you marry. He decides what job you take, not you. You are to feel what he feels. You are to love what he loves, and you are to hate what he hates. You're, you are, don't conform. I heard a guy say it on the radio the other day. We need to conform ourselves to Christ. No, you don't. No, you don't. When you conform yourself to something, you become, you become like it. You can conform yourself to the world. And when you conform yourself to the world, you become like the world. That's the problem in God's people's minds today. You think you're to conform yourself to Christ. You're not to conform yourself to Christ. You're to transform yourself into him. When you conform, you become like him. When you transform, you become him. Amen. That's the problem. I'm not saying you shouldn't conform yourself in the sense of be like him, but it doesn't stop there. 
The Bible says that you have to be transformed. A transformation. In this church, you're looking at, you're looking at 160 people who every one of you, if you're saved, are in a different point of transition. You're transforming yourself not to be like him, to be him. Every day, you're one day closer to be getting that glorified body, to getting that glorified mind. Right now, the Spirit of God is locked in this earthen vessel, and the mind of God is locked in a book of pages. But every day you wake up, you ought to be a little more like him because you're one day closer to being him. You don't conform to anything. You transform. The world will transform you. The world will inform you. The word will misinform you, but only the Bible can transform you. And that's the problem we've got today. Attitude of a servant. Attitude is everything. Yet he takes that old dirty, rotten, hell-bound sinner, and you know what he does? He not only makes me his servant, I am a bond slave, I don't have any rights, but boy, you talk about the icing on the cake. God is the only master in the world that takes his slaves and makes them his own sons. Find a better deal than that. Find a better deal than that. I'm a servant, but I serve him as a son. Now, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, and then the next thing he says is this, called to be an apostle. Now, the next thing I want to talk to you about is your calling. If you're saved here this morning, God has called you to do something. Now, I'm going to tell you that we're all called to do some things. Everybody's called to pray. Everybody's called to read your Bible. Everybody's called to witness. I'm not talking about that. When we come through discipleship, we talk about the aspect of the will of God and the plan of God in your life. And I tell you that most of God's people, most churches, most pastors, they, they, they confuse the two, and that's why God's people are confused. Now, we've got a number of people here this morning, and I suspect that probably most of you are saved. But let me say this to you. If you're saved here this morning, God's will in your life is the same for everybody in this room. I don't care if you're male or female. I don't care if you just got saved. You've been saved for 140 years. If you're saved, male or female, God's will for you is the same. I, every time I hear somebody get up and start to give a testimony and they say, well, God's will for my life was to be a preacher or God's will for my life was to marry this person or God's will for my life was to do this, to do that, I know right out of the chute they don't understand one of the greatest concepts taught in all the Bible and the reason why God's people are so confused is because, well, a number of issues, but this is certainly one of them. Your, your understanding of the will of God in your life is absolutely paramount. God's will in your life is not that you become a preacher. It's not that you find a wife. It's not that you become a missionary. God's will in your life is that every day of your life, you become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's will. God's will for you and for me is exactly the same across the board. God wants you and me every day of our life to conform to his image to become more like him. Now, God's plan for your life is what you do. God's will for your life is what you are. God's plan for your life is what you do. That's the calling. But you see why? If you don't ever become like Christ. Now, th this is a foreign concept today in Christianity. you got to be something with God before you can do something for God. We talk about spiritual gifts. Oh, everybody's big on spiritual gifts. 
We like to study spiritual gifts. We like to talk about the, uh, the, the gifts of the Spirit. Well, and every time I hear it, I just kind of roll my eyes back in my head and say, here we go again. Oh, the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. What gifts do you have? Well, I even got things out now where you can take a color chart test to find out what your gift is. We have made it everything but what the Bible says it is. Let me tell you something. I hear so much about the gifts of God, but I hear nothing about the character qualities of God. You can't have the gifts of God without having the character qualities of God. One of them is God's will. The other one's God's plan or God's calling. God's will is something that you are. God's plan is something that you do. And you only fulfill what God wants you to do as you conform your, transform yourself into what he wants you to be. And God has called you. God has called you. We saw the book of Judges last night, how, a story about Gideon 300. And we saw how that Gideon started out with 32,000 men going up against the Midianite armies. Greatly outnumbered. And yet, God says, you got too many. And he sends out of the three, uh, 32,000, he sends everybody home finally except 300. And in those 300, he says this. Dump your bows and arrows, dump your shields, dump your swords, dump your catapults, dump your slingshots, dump your M16, your M14, dump the air cover, dump all this, dump the bombs, dump the helicopters, dump the transport. Go out and find you three things. Go get you an earthen vessel, a pitcher, go get you a lamp, and then go get you a trumpet. And, John, and, 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 and he looks, or, uh, Gideon looks at him and he says, you got to be kidding me. He said, No. He said, well, what about all this weaponry we got? We were going to just smite them hip and thigh. God says, you don't need that. Go get you a earthen, a pitcher, go get you a light, and go get you a trumpet. And then you put that light inside that vase. And when you come up to that city, here's what you do. You break that vase, you let that light suddenly shine, and then you pick up that trumpet and you sound the alarm. Now, we don't have time to get to the doctrinal applications of that. If you went through the book of Judges, you know what it is by now. If you didn't go through the book of Judges, it's your own fault. But the bottom line is this. God wants to use you. And right now, you've got a light inside you if you're saved. That light is the Holy Spirit of God. And what do we sing to our little kids? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. What does the Bible say? A, 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 a light on a hill cannot be hidden. Every one of you got a light inside you that got lit the day you got saved. But you know why the world can't see it? You know why? Because you've never come to the place where you develop the attitude of a servant. You've never come to the place where you ever understood that God wants you to be something before you can do something. And before they can let that light shine and they can blow that trumpet and win that battle, they have to break the vessels. You have to come to the end of self and you have to let God take this body of clay and break it before the light comes forth. That's the problem. That's the problem. God's call is fulfilled only after you break the vessel and that's your attitude of a servant. You know what my job as pastor is among many other jobs? My job as pastor to, to, to see the call in your life before you do. My Bible says as a pastor in the book of Proverbs that I'm to, I'm, to, I'm, to, I'm to look after the state of my flocks. I'm to know the state of my flocks and look well nigh to my herds. And the average person says out here and they say, well, I see about 160, 170 people. What do you see, Bob? I just see a herd. I just see a bunch of sheep. 
Guy said one time, well, a pastor, your pastor's a shepherd. No, you got that all wrong. There's only one shepherd in the Bible, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not a shepherd. I'm a sheepdog. About, oh, 12, 15 years ago, I preached a revival out, in, out west, and they put me up on a ranch, and this was a ranch. I mean, a ranch here is 100 acres. Out there, this guy had 90,000 acres. I mean, you come out in the morning and look on the hill that's 20 miles away, and there's 500-something up there eating. <laughs> Caribou, brontosauruses, I'm not sure what they were, but they were up there. I mean, that guy says, I, I said, I said, because it, it looks a lot closer than it is, you know. I said to the old cowboy, you know, I said, man, I said, uh, you sit down here with a high-powered rifle. He says, uh, you can knock one of them off. He said, yep, yep. You know, he's chewing tobacco. Yep, yeah, that's right. And I said, well, it sounds good to me. He says, he said, that's got 10 miles away, son. I said, whoa, they're either awful big <laughs> or things are it, deceptive. You could ride. He, they would take guys out, and they'd ride three days to get to the end of his ranch. Now, that's big. Now we're down there and I'm watching all these, he got all these, all these sheep out there. And he would go out there and he would, he would feed the sheep, you know, and he had cattle on one side and he had three dogs. And I watched those dogs for the whole week I was there. Those dogs were the smartest dogs in the world next to my three. Those dogs, when a guy put that food out, those dogs would run around there and if the sheep weren't getting out there to eat, those dogs would run around and nip at their heels and bring those sheep all in. That dog began to ran around those sheep barking. And every time he ran around, he'd come in a little closer. And his barking kept putting the sheep in a pack. And then the other dog, if one sheep would scatter out, they'd run out there and he'd, he'd get that sheep back. I thought to myself, you know what? All my life I heard it wrong. I thought a pastor was a shepherd. Pastor's not a shepherd. My job is to be a sheepdog. I just run around this circle all day long, nipping at heels. And when some of you get out of the flock, I come out and I bark at you. There's some of you don't like it. But you know what? I don't know what to tell you. That's my job. I'm a sheepdog. My job is to give you the best chance in the world to be everything God wants you to be. My job is to know where you're at spiritually even better than you do. Because I see the signs that you don't see. There's some infallible, infallible proofs in that Bible that dictate. The Bible says when any man loves God, the same is known of him. You learn to look for the right things, you can tell somebody where they're at with God just by talking to them. And my job is to, my job is to see the call in you before God calls you. My job as pastor is to be the sheepdog. It's all, a, it's all like the law of physics, you see. It's that action has an equal reaction. I mean, I preach by action. You respond, see? That's your reaction. I watch that. I put the Word of God out. I watch how you respond to it. I watch what it does in your life. Some of you have been here now five years almost, five years in June. Some of you have been here three years, and already, without me saying a thing to you, I see God, the call in your life, that what God's going to probably do with you. I don't run over and tell you. It's not my job to tell you. It's my job for God to show me as your pastor, and then it's my job to get everything in your path to help you develop that. You know why I don't want to tell you that? Because it may be something else other than I see. But I see where the direction is. And my job is to put in your life and get you to the material and get the stuff in your life that's going to help you fulfill the call that God has for you. Some of you are going to make very good pastors one day. Couple of you in here have really got the ability at this stage of your life. You keep your nose clean, you don't screw it up. 
two or three of you have the ability to really be a good pastor someday. You'll have that ability. And I can see where that could be your calling. I don't tell you who you are because I, I, I'm not God, I'm not infallible, but God shows me just by human nature where you're going, what you're getting into, how you're growing, how you preach, how you apply the Word of God to what you do, and it's pretty obvious in my mind that God is going to call you to do something, and it's probably going to be the pastor. Some of you, you have, you, you have ability uh, to really be good at preaching. Maybe God will never call you to pastor. And, but you have the ability to communicate in preaching. And I look at that and I say to myself, hey, I, I, I listen to everything that goes on. When I sit down there at the mission, I listen to every word you say. I, I, you betray yourself where you're at with God and the Word of God by what you say. You say, how do you know that? First principle is, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I can tell how much you prepared. I can tell how much you know. You cannot, but you betray yourself. If you don't want me to find out what you know or don't know when you get up to preach next time, just keep your mouth shut. Just stand there and wave. Throw tracks out with candy on them. But when a man opens up his mouth, if you know what you're looking for, you can tell in 15 minutes where he's at with God. Because you cannot hide true love and true relationship with God. If any man love God, the same is known of him. Some of you have the ability to be good preachers. Maybe you'll never pastor, but God is going to use you as a preacher. Some of you have the incredible ability. You're not, you're not, a, you're not, understand, you're not a, going to be a great preacher someday. You're probably never a pastor. But you have an incredible ability to be one-on-one -on -one with people. People are drawn to you like a magnet. When people get jams, they call you. Some of you have the ability, guys and gals, to have that ability that you're just incredible one-on-one -on -one with people. You have an ability that when you sit down with somebody that you can just get in there and do whatever needs to be done. Some of you have never been eight preachers, but you're going to be great at bearing other people's burdens. You're going to be excellent in the counseling ministry. You're going to be excellent when I give you somebody that's got marital issues or somebody that's got a, a personal one-on-one -on -one issues. And you're going, to, you're going to be just wonderful at that because it's developing that that's your calling. Some of you, bless your heart, are behind-the-scenes people. And you know what? Back in my hometown church in Canton, Ohio, we started back in the 1970s, we, we started what we call the Christian Hall of Fame. And there's probably right now about 400 photographs, or not photographs, but paintings, big mural paintings. And this church is humongous. This church at one time, before I left, it ran about five, 6,000 people. And this church is huge. This church would fill up this whole, whole corner all the way over to the dentist office and all the way back. It's huge. And you walk down those call hoarders, and all on those walls are pictures of the great saints, starting with the very early ones right up to the ones that are still dying, and they put their pictures in. Right before I left there to come to Kansas City, they put one which I thought was the greatest picture they could ever put in there. And it was a picture of somebody that nobody knew. And underneath that caption where you had Jonathan Edwards over here and, and Tory over here and, and Moody over here and Spurgeon over here, underneath that one it just said, dedicated to the unknown Christian. They got it. They got it. Because some of you will never set the world on fire when you preach. Some of you will never turn the world upside down with, with whatever you do. But you know what? For a guy who can set the world on fire, he will never get the fire started without you behind him and bringing him the firewood. You're absolutely invaluable. 
Now I said all that to say this. Somewhere in this mix of sheep, you're calling lies. And as you grow, God is going to make it clear what your calling is. The thing that you don't want to do is you don't want to get impatient. The thing you really don't want to do is you don't want to get in competition. You know, somebody thinks, well, there's a tendency, you know, well, somebody preaches really good and somebody else maybe doesn't preach very well. Does somebody think this guy's better than this person? That's not true. No, no, no. Everybody has their calling. It isn't about what you do good. It goes back to the attitude of a servant that you have. You'll never get the calling unless you understand being a servant first. Now, I believe you should never stop growing. If you're not a very good teacher, I believe that uh, you, ought to keep on, you ought to keep on trying to teach. By the way, you did a great job the other night. Listen to your tape. Long, but good. You got a calling there. Now, maybe you can't get up and preach like Ray can yet, but you'll chase him down the road someday maybe. But you can teach. That was excellent. I sit there and listen. I even learned a couple of things. I'm not going to tell you what they are because I don't want you to get ahead of me. But, but it was good. And he sat up there and he laid that out with those guys there and he brought that stuff together and he laid it out. It was systematic. It was based biblically on the Bible. You had it in the right order. It was understandable. You could lay it out. Now, maybe you'll never be what he can do. I'll never do what he can do. Well, I got my eye on him. I don't really like him. I just leave him stay here watching him all the time. That's okay. Not everybody can be a preacher. Not everybody can be a great teacher. But whatever your calling is, make full proof of your calling. Be sure of your calling. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. And I believe you should never stop growing. I think you should keep on trying to preach. I need, I, everybody needs to keep moving down the line. Everybody needs to keep doing what they can do. But in that, God is going to give you your calling. And then together we'll work as we go down through the line. You always need to be exercising your spiritual senses and your abilities. And you make sure you're calling. You say, how do you make sure you're calling? How do I know for sure what my calling is? Well, first of all, and I know I use these two guides, but I could point to a number of you. The bottom line is this. You don't have to worry about making your calling sure because the body of this church will make it sure. That's the way it works. Remember Timothy, one of the seven I gave him when he started our message in Acts chapter 16? The Bible says Timothy, now he had a calling. God called him to be a pastor. God called him, and the relationship that he had with Paul was the key to getting that. How long have we been together now, Mary? What, almost five years. Met you before, when you, before you, were, when you got married. You came in to talk to me, and, I, and we clicked, and been coming over ever since. And as many of you, we go back that far. And what I see is when I get into your life and we work on a consistent basis, God shows me what to look for. And I see those areas that you need to work on. I see those areas that you need to strengthen. But I also see the areas that God, you have the abilities to be used of God. You're calling. The Bible says Timothy was well reported of by the brethren. He learned on-the-job training from his pastor. He responded to responsibility and accountability. He earned the title of leadership by being a servant. 
He followed and submitted himself to authority. He was a good follower before he ever became a good leader. And I want to tell you something, and, and you think the devil doesn't know what I'm telling you? Because I want to tell you. I want to tell you. There will be people in your life that will try to discourage you in your calling. There will be people in your life that try to discourage you in your calling. I've been in churches, and, you know, I'll never forget. And, and this is no slam on her because, you know, it's, a, it's, it's just what the way it was. When I first got right with God back in 1971, and I went down and I made my right peace with God. I was so excited. I did that the morning. I know this is going to sound stupid to you. But that next night, or that same night, Sunday morning I went down and gave it all to God. That Sunday night when the altar, when the, in the main church service, when the invitation was given, I went down to surrender to preach. Now, I hadn't been right with God 10 hours. But I had such a burden in my heart. I told God that morning, I don't care what you want me to do. I don't care where you want me to go. And that night when they gave the invitation, I just... Something inside of me just said, go down there and submit yourself to full-time service. I didn't even know what full-time service was. I remember going down there, and I said, and the guy said, what would you come forward for? And I said, I don't have a clue. I said, I just know that i got a burden in my heart, and I want to I do whatever God wants me to do. The guy said, has God called you to preach? And I said, sounds good to me. And we got down on our knees down there, and he committed me to something. I don't know what it was. And I got up, and I was, so, I was so on fire. I was so excited, and I went home, and I couldn't sleep that night. And I knew I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't care what I was going to do. I didn't, and all I knew that for the first time in my life, God was going to use me. It was pure. It was clean. It was right. It was godly, and it was holy, and I was happy till Tuesday. <laughs> Sunday to Tuesday, Ray. I didn't even make it half the week. They sent a letter to my house, the church. And my mother back then, and probably still would have lived to her, always opened everybody's mail. <laughs> In this letter, the pastor had written me congratulating me for surrendering to full-time service. Well, my mother saw that, and, 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 and I'll never forget. She, she came up and she says, what's this? I said, I don't know. She said, well, it says you committed to full-time service. And the Lord. And I said, oh, yeah, I went for it the other night. She says, you? You, you couldn't do this. You can't preach. You can't do any of this. What are you going to do? Go off to Bible college someplace? You? Now, you see, I'm tailored to say that. Now, that's no reflection on my mother because she was where she was at and I was where I was at. You know what? It wouldn't matter if the president would have called me and said, you can't do it. I'd have said, hold on, pal. I don't even remember who was president yet. Hold on, pal. They killed the last one. They'll get you too. I can do it. <laughs> Nothing was going to stop me because I knew. And you know what? I think at that point, if I'd have known what I was going to do, it would have bothered me more than not knowing what I was going to do. I didn't care. I made up my mind if God wanted me to drive a garbage truck the rest of my life, I was going to be the best gospel garbage truck driver in the world. I didn't care. So I say you keep developing because you never know what God is going to do. When I finally, when I finally got plugged in, a man took me under his wing, and he was a great preacher. I played the trumpet, and I could lead singing. 
So he started taking me all around to his preaching engagements all around the state of Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia. We leave, I'd get home from work, jump over to his place, we'd get in a car and out we'd go. We'd travel for two, three hours. He'd get up and preach. I'd lead to sing and play my horn, get up there and get everybody fired up. He'd come up, hit them hard, make them fumble. We'd get in the car, head back. I'd get home about 2 o'clock in the morning, get back up and go to work the next day. I didn't care. And at that point in my life, I said this. I says, because God was using me. And I was still young and still stupid. And I said to God, God, I don't care about preaching. I finally found what you want me to do. You want me to leave singing, play the trumpet, and just do what I'm doing right now. Man, I'm going to do that. But I never gave up pursuing the ability to preach. And here I am today. I don't even know where my trumpet's at. I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. And I don't preach very well, but I do the best job I can. Because that's my calling. But he changed my calling in the process. It wasn't always what it was. And people will discourage you. They'll try to discourage you. They'll try to come to the point where they, they get you to, to doubt yourself. And they'll, they'll say things or they'll make statements or comments. Or many times when you preach and you do well, the absence of them saying something is louder than if they just said something. Don't let that discourage you didn't discourage me. Bottom line, after God in your life, the end of the day in this church, the only one you've got to worry about being happy is me. You don't have to worry about what somebody else thinks about you. You need to worry as far as ministry is concerned where you're at with me. After you're with the Lord, that's where it's at. I'm the pastor. I'm the one that sees in you what somebody else can't see. Somebody else may see you or hear you do this or see you do that, and they may have some axe to grind against you. So they're going to be saying, I don't have an axe to grind. I hate y'all. I love y'all. I don't look at anybody better than anybody else. When I look at you out there, I see 160, 70 people that could set this world on fire for God. You have to choose. My standard policy is I'm ready whenever you're ready. That's how we do it. I'm ready when you're ready. But don't let anybody ever sell you short. I'm going to tell you a great principle. Most people who don't like you and criticize you behind your back, nine times out of ten are people who are jealous of you and mad at you because they want to be like you. Now, I'm going to tell you that. There are people in this town today that hate my guts. And if you met them, they'd tell you everything you ever didn't want to hear about me. But you know why they hate me so much? Because every time they open their Bible, they can't go to a Bible or hold it right side up or find out what it says without going back to something I taught them. That's just it. Doesn't bother me. Praise the Lord, brother. I got a calling. And make that calling sure. And you do it by getting the attitude of a servant. Then the last thing he says down here, he says, he says, the last thing he says, and this has to do with your separation. This is a great study in itself. And it's probably the most important. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, Separation in your Bible is also known by another word called sanctification. The day you got saved, and you hear this word a lot, the day you get, got saved, you got sanctified. What does that mean? Sanctified means you got set apart. You got separated from the, from, from the world. In reality, in a spiritual sense, from your, from your flesh. And so Paul says, separate unto the gospel of God. Had you ever wonder in your life why some people never make it? 
You ever wonder in your life why some of God's people, they come to church, you see them for a while, and then they're gone and they're back into the world. Do you ever wonder how that works? I'll tell you how that works. I'm going to give you a great key today in working with people. And it's one that 99% of the pastors in this country don't have a clue. That's why they, instead of having doors on their churches, they need to have a revolving door. People are going out as fast as they're coming in. And the reason is that is because of this number one problem that you find, and it is simply this. When you got saved, and I hear pastors all the time, when you get saved, they get up there and they preach every Sunday. You need to give up booze. You need to give up drugs. You need to give up premarital sex. You need to give up cigarettes. You need to give up this. You need to give up that. You need to, and they're so big on what you need to give up. And I'm all for that. I think that when you get saved, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. All things become new. I have no problem with that. My problem is this. You cannot ask a man or a woman who just gets saved to give up the world and all that's in it if you're not willing to give them something to replace it with. The void of that being gone in their life will suck them right back in if you don't have something to replace it with. If you messed a lot with sin before you got saved, and maybe even after you got saved, I got some news for you. And you know some of this, you know this is true. When you finally take all this seriously, and you finally get your focus, and you finally want to be what God wants you to be, you actually think that the things that you were messing around with before you got right with God or saved aren't going to be the number one issues you got after you get saved? You think they're all going to go away and devil's just going to start nitpicking at new things? He's going, to, he's going to deal with what has been tried and tested in your life. And the problem is, and Paul says it, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be apostle, listen to it, separated unto the gospel of God. Paul just didn't separate from the world. He separated to something. And that's what you got to do. You not only got to separate from the world, but you have to separate to something to fill that void. Or you're going to go right back into it. That thing's going to suck you down like a whirlpool. All my life I've dealt with people who have tried to live for God and just couldn't do it. Some of the worst situations in your life. In every case, without a doubt, in every case, the bottom fundamental reason and the problem was is that they separated from it for a while, but they never got separated to something. And in time, it'll get you. You got to make a clean break with the world. We just saw this principle back in the book of Judges for those that have just finished it up last night and the ones before, chapter 1, 2, and 3. Israel has not even made their, their high mark yet in, their, in history. They've not even had David and Solomon, two of the greatest kings they ever had. They're 400 years out from that, but already everything is in place for their ultimate destruction. You know why? Because they just wouldn't cut ties with the world and separate themselves from it to God, and it got them in the end. And it'll get you. It'll get you. It'll get you. Some of you, the reason why you can't get through is because you're old friends. You got friends that uh, you got friends that just uh, are, 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 are your problem. And you try to do the best you can, and you try to do the best you can, and you come to church for a couple of times, and you get there, and then you get back out with them, and they lead you right back down in the gutter. You know what you got to do? 
You say, I got to get rid of my friends. That's only half of it. You got to get rid of those friends, but then you got to separate to something else. Be here every time the door is open. Get involved in everything that's going on. Fill up that empty time in your life that you're not sitting around wondering. Tell your old friends, don't call me anymore. Take your cell phone. Delete their numbers. Change your cell phone. Do whatever you got to do. Separate from them, but then separate yourself to some good Christian living friends that do the right thing, go the right places, and deal with the things the way it's supposed to be. You got to get rid of them. For some of you, you know what it was? It was music. And I understand this. Because I call somebody on your cell phones and I think I've got some topless bar someplace. <laughs> My God, some of the music you Christians have on your stuff. No wonder you got problems in the world. No wonder you got problems with your friends. Let me tell you something. That ain't, the, that ain't the joy down in your heart that God wants. I call some people and I don't even I won't even call you anymore. A call, and it sounds like some kind of rap, goofy stuff that and, and four-letter words in the thing, and, 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 and what? You're a Christian? You say, well, God never called me. You betcha. He don't want to listen to it either. <laughs> Incredible what some of God's people do. About a year and a half ago, we had a, well, probably longer than that, had a young guy that came to church here for a while, and, you know, he was a nice kid. They're all nice kids. And he, you know what? He had some ability and he could be used to God, but he just couldn't get his foot out of the world. And he brought a couple of girls, you know, to church, girlfriends to church, you know, and, and, and he dropped off the scene, you know, and he came back and then he was gone. He came back and, you know, just, a, and I don't know where he's at now. I haven't seen him for two years. But I'll never forget. He, he brought a couple of his girls to church and the one girl really liked it. But the thing that kept her from ever coming back was the bozo who brought her. And she called me on the phone one day and asked for an appointment. And I said, sure, honey, come on over. We sat down. And she says, she says I'm really confused. She says, so-and-so says he's a member of your church. And I said, well, yeah, he is a member of our church. I guess he comes. He's been coming now for about six months. She says, I want you to know that, 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 that I slept with him two weeks ago. And I want you to know that, uh, that, 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 that he listens to the most ungodly music you ever heard in your life. And he says, I just got a question. She says, how can a guy like that be a, and he's a member of your church? Now, as a pastor, what do you say to that? Well, I'll tell you what I said. I remember the old D.L. Moody thing. Old D.L. Moody was a great preacher. And he was preaching one night, and they were going down to some place, walking down the road, and, and uh, the reporters were after him, and right out in front of him came a guy staggering drunk out of Moody's church. And they were always looking to hang something on Moody. And one of the reporters come up, and he said, Hey, Mr. Moody, see that drunk over there? Isn't he one of your church members? You know what Moody said? Classic statement. He said, Well, sir, he must be one of mine. He couldn't be one of the Lord's. So I pulled it. I said, well, sweetheart, he must be a member of my church because he sure couldn't be a member of God's. What do you do? What do you do? You see, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I mean, some of you people, it's your music. You know what? I, I was watching TV a while back, and, uh, and uh, on there, you know, they sell all those things. The best thing is you get, you get 100 horror movies for $9.99. I can't beat that, man. I love it. But they had great hymns of the faith, two volumes. Boy, I, I, they played some of it, and I thought, whoa, that's what I want to hear. And I went and got that thing, boy, and two CD discs, and I mean it's got the great hymns of the faith, just like you're in church. 
and they're singing those songs. Man, I'll tell you, I put that thing on all day long. You got to get some good music. You got to get, you got to replace it. You got to get rid of the God's trash, but you got to replace it with something. You got to get some, burn those things and get some good stuff. Get it off your phone. Get it off this. Get it wherever you got it. Get some good, godly stuff that you can listen to that'll motivate you, that'll feed your soul. You got to separate from it, but you got to replace it with something. That's the problem. Some of you have a problem smoking. And I know some of you come in and you've talked to me. I want to quit. Hey, if there's anything, if there are two things that shows you what Paul says about uh, all things are lawful but all things are expedient, and he says, I will not be under the power, brought under the power of any, it's, it's drinking and smoking and drugs. Of course, anything can be habitable for him, but that's what we deal with. I had a friend of mine years ago that God wanted him to preach. He couldn't give up a cigarette. He struggled with it, struggled with it, struggled with it. Finally, he got the idea, you know, he said, you know, and did you ever watch a guy who's a, or a person who's a chain smoker? They don't even know they're smoking anymore. You see them on there and they're going, it's automatic, 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 automatic. Well, he had the same problem. And he was spending, you know, I don't know what they cost now, a pack, but back then it was a dollar a pack. I think it's like $100 a pack today. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and so, and you know what he did? You know how he broke that? He got himself a little pocket New Testament about the size of a pack of cigarettes. He threw his cigarettes away and he put that New Testament in his pocket. And every time he reached for a cigarette, he got that New Testament. And then he had a whole bunch of verses in there. Instead of having a cigarette, he read it. You know what he did? He separated from it, but he replaced it to something else. That's what you got to do. If you have a problem with booze and you get saved or after you're saved and you want to dump it, you know what? You're dumping that liquid down in your body all that time. Start drinking great quantities of lemonade, Diet Coke, something. You can't just quit cold turkey and go off of it and, and not have it affect you. You have, to, you have to separate to something. That flesh is used to guzzling that dial like it is those cigarettes. You got to replace it with something. And that's what you got to do. Some of you read some real trash before you got saved and after you got saved. You know what you got to do? You got to separate from it, and then you got to start reading good books. Get you some good biographies. Get you some good, get you some good uh, biographies about Christian men that really did some things for God. Get some books that really show how God changed a man's life or a woman's life. Separate from that, but get the good stuff. Paul says he separated from the world, but he separated unto the gospel. You got to get separated to something, not just from something. Some of you have a tough time with sex and pornography. I mean, let's just be honest this morning. You know you do, and you struggle with that. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you. I walk into some of you guys' bedrooms and I think to myself, well, what is this, a whorehouse? You got naked pictures on the wall or half naked, it might as well be. What's wrong with you? You're a Christian? You know what you ought to do? Separate from that. Get old Ruckman's catalog over there and go down there and get some. You know what I just bought last week? I don't know if we'll ever get to use them or not. I didn't want to get them before, before they went, went out of stock. Because they go out from time to time. He had banners that he's got that are like four by eight. And they're banners, uh, vinyl banners. And one of them is a picture of the Bible called the, 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 uh, the, the, the monarch of the books. And the Bible sit on all the other books. One of them is a picture of the great white throat judgment with people being cast in a lake of fire with a verse. One of them is Christ being crucified in the cross. We got a new building down there. Those are going up right on the wall down along the side of that church. 
You say, you mean you're going to ruin that nice decor with those pictures? You bet I am. I'll tell you what. Get one of that lake of fire where people being dumbed in a lake of fire and then the next time your parents aren't home are you going to slip your little sweetheart up there for a little fun time? Uh, when, you're, when you get into the mood for it, just let her look at the great white throne judgment. See if that just kind of puts her in the mood. <laughs> if you're going to separate from it, then you've got to replace it with something. I have a lady that comes over to see me. We've been meeting now for over just about a year. And uh, Ray and Dawn, tied me into this lady when they were over there at the church they were before they came here. This lady, I would like to say she was a psychiatrist's nightmare, but that would be an understatement. The psychiatrist told her not to come back, didn't they, Ray? This woman was a basket case for four, 30 years of her life. When I got her, she was on 18 different drugs. I mean, she had a t-shirt that said Walgreens on the back. She was a drugstore. She was, she was diagnosed with bipolar. She was depressed. She had all the clinical ailments. The first time they took her to her pastor years ago, they cast out demons of her. That didn't help her. If she did have them, they just went into the pastor. That didn't help. Then they just wanted to blame it on the fact that uh, everything in the world. For 30-some years, she struggled. It put her a strain from her husband. It, she lost her kids. They wanted nothing to do with her. Everybody looked at her as she was nuts. Finally, she comes over to see me, and the one nut met the biggest nut there ever was. I used my little system because I followed that thing in Romans 1 for 30 years of my life in ministry. I can't ask you to give up something without replacing it back. And some of you in this room today are going to know what I'm going to talk about, that we got her a little three-by-five cards. Those little three-by-five cards, we put verses on that are akin to what your problem is. And every time you get, a, you get a fit of depression, every time you get this, every time you get that, you pull out those three-by-five cards and you start claiming those promises. You see, her problem is like a lot of people's problems. She had been brainwashed with all the filth of this world. We needed to wash out that mind by the washing of regeneration by the Word of God and put the Word of God in it. Now here she is a year later, she's hell on wheels. Her attitude now is, with old people over there and everybody else, is this. You put me in prison once, God delivered me. I ain't ever going back. She's got the book. In fact, she's in our class on Saturday night, her and her husband. She's got the book. She's learning principles. She's putting it together. She's excited. She hasn't been depressed. She's off the medicine. She hasn't done anything. She is completely on the right road. You know why? Because she just didn't separate from something. She separated to something. She replaced all the worldly, godless psychology with the pure, unadulterated Word of God, and the principles work. Changed her life. Now her family's coming back. Now her sons and her daughters want to know what the change about her is. And now she's, she's instead of being a, 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 the, the problem person, now she's telling them, hey, I once was like this, but the Word of God has changed my life. Just separating from it won't do it, friends. you got to separate from it, but you got to separate to something. Some of you, very frankly, are your own worst problem. It's yourself. Your biggest problem is in the world. It isn't drugs. The biggest problem you got is you. 
and you don't want to change about you what you got to change. You like blaming everybody else. You like not taking any responsibility for it. The bottom line is you are the one who has to change. And when you realize that you can't just walk away from it without putting something in to take its place. If you don't fill that void of what you gave up with something of God's, it's going to suck you right back into that vacuum and you're going to go right back into it. Paul said, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. All right? Three things in your life. God wants you to be a servant. That's your attitude. And you get that servant attitude by breaking the vessel, coming to the end of self. You get that by changing your attitude. Attitude and action. You change the attitude, it'll change the action. You got to get a servant's heart. You got to recognize that you're a bond slave. You don't have any rights. It doesn't matter if you're black, you're red, you're yellow, you're chartreuse, or you're purple. If you're saved, you're God's servant. You're God's bond slave. You don't have a right in your life to say anything. You go where you're told. You do what you do. You're his servant, but you're also his son. He's the best master you'll ever have. If you want a good story of it, go back to the Old Testament and study next week the story of Mephibosheth back in Kings. Great study. You get the right attitude, servant's heart. God works through that, and then God calls you. God calls you. God has a calling for every man and woman in this building. The phone's ringing. Pick it up. He's called. He'll call you through this work. He'll call you through your attitude when it comes to ministry and the Word of God because God has something that He's called you to do that has nothing to do with God's will. You see, God's will is the attitude of a servant. What He wants you to do, the calling has to do with the thing that you're going to do for Him. But before you can do that, you've got to not just separate from the world but you've got to separate unto something. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Just walking away from it will pull you right back down into it. Whatever you got to do, whatever you got to change, whatever you got to do, however I can help you, get to that place in your life where you fill the void that you can break the shackles of the chains around you. You see, sin's a very, a very, a very subtle thing. The book of Proverbs talks about a threefold cord is not easily broken. And we use that many, many times in a, in a doctrinal sense, talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and the cord that was let down there in uh, Joshua, and that's true. But you take a little piece of thread, just your average garden variety sewing thread, and you wrap that around your finger. I try to use it sometimes when, I, when I'm trying to fix something that's got a, a little shim in it. And you can wind it around in there and then it'll tighten it up and bind it up. And I can't, it breaks so easily. And you could take a piece of little thread, black thread, white thread, red thread, put it around your fingers and just snap that thing. You take that same piece of thread and wrap it around those fingers a hundred times. You will die trying to get out from under that bondage. That's the way sin is. It looks like it's no event one time. It looks like it's no big deal. Oh, everybody does it. It's okay. But you take a life of 10, 15, 20 years of wrapping those things around you, and let me tell you something. You'll die in your sin trying to break 
those cords that you put around your life. Sin never leaves a man any better than it finds him. And you need to understand you need to be a servant. You need to answer the call. And then you separate yourself from the world and separate yourself to something. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, 